Uh, good morning. Morning. <laughs> Today is uh, January 29th, 2023, and uh, my Taisho this morning is, uh, um, <clears throat> I don't have a, a title really. Well, I know what I'm talking about. I'm going to be talking about Marsha Linehan. Some people may know who she is. Uh, she's the uh, uh, developer of something called dialectical behavioral, maybe it's just dialectic, dialectical behavioral therapy, or DBT. <clears throat> and uh, so Marshall Linehan and the concept of radical acceptance. And uh, I've got way too much material, so I'm going to try to carefully <clears throat> take just the very best and uh, see if we can get through this in an acceptable amount of time. As far as I can make out, uh, Marshall Linehan was the first person to <clears throat> use the term radical acceptance. Um, back in 1993, when she was developing DBT, there are other people that sort of have it as part of their brand, and uh, <clears throat> we could talk about that a little later, but um, I want to I begin by just telling you her story. And uh, I found a good description of this in an article on the web. <clears throat> and the title of it is, uh, it, was, it, it appeared in Psychology Today. And the title is, How Marsha Linehan Developed the Central Feature of Dialectical Behavior Therapy. And this is uh, directly from her. She said, I've done many hard things in my life. But the most devastating was coming to terms with a totally unexpected, complete breakdown, the disillusion of the person I had always been. I'd been a happy-go-lucky, confident high school girl, popular among my classmates, often the one to initiate activities, organizing concerts, for example, or simply gathering a group for ice cream at the drugstore. <clears throat> Back when you had ice cream at the drugstore. I was always careful to make sure everyone's needs were met, that no one was left out. I was elected and nominated to important class roles in junior year and senior year. I was the kind of girl who might be voted most popular or most likely to succeed. But then, as my senior year progressed, this confident girl began to disappear. I did not know what had happened to me. No one knew. At the age of 18, I was admitted to a psychiatric institution called the Institute of Living in Hartford, Connecticut. My experience at the Institute was a descent into hell, an out of control storm of emotional torture and absolute anguish. There was no escape. God, where are you? I whispered each day, but got no answer. The pain and turmoil are hard to describe. How do you adequately convey what it is like to be in hell? You can't. You can only feel it, experience it. And I did. I felt this inside myself, and I didn't want to go on living anymore. <clears throat> Read other accounts of her time there. She was, uh, she was just impossible. You know, the, they, they couldn't do anything for her, and she spent a lot of time in a padded room, banging against the walls. I've had some experience visiting 
a relative in uh, in our wing, and uh, it can be pretty hellish there. You hear people just screaming in agony. And that's where she was. She says, but I survived. And towards the end of my time at the Institute, I made a promise to God, a vow, that I would get myself out of hell. And that once I did, I would find a way to get others <clears throat> out of hell too. <clears throat> I'm getting a little verklempt here. Um, this is such a profoundly bodhisattvic vow to take. <clears throat> she, was, she was determined. She was determined to find something that would help suicidal people, people who were deemed beyond saving. And just to say a little bit about this population of suicidal people, <clears throat> there are a lot of mental patients that are just considered by almost all therapists to be beyond help. You just can't work with them. And this is exactly the population that Marsha Linehan set out to help. Because unknown to everyone, she was one of them. She said, I have felt the pain that my clients feel as they wrestle the emotional demons that tear at their souls. I understand what it is like to feel terrible emotional pain, to desperately want to escape by whatever means. Dialectical behavior therapy therapy, DBT, was and is my best effort to date at keeping my vow. <clears throat> I, I think it's really helpful to look at uh, what she was able to do and look at the, the treatment for people who uh, have, this, have this kind of psychological <clears throat> dysfunction. It's, uh, it's generally what she discovered is the people who were suicidal mostly fall into a category called um, <laughs> borderline personality disorder or BPD. Um, I've known a few people with that diagnosis and they tend to be extremely emotional and uh, emotionally dysregulated. So everything is explosive. And uh, you'll, you'll see that as we go along. And she talks about her, her work with, those, with that population. Um, oftentimes very intelligent and uh, you know many, many excellent qualities. But uh, they're so, so easily upset that people have trouble working with them. And, and I know um, psychologists who simply say, I won't work with somebody who's got a personality disorder. <clears throat> but of course, all of us have emotional reactivity. We all can fly off the handle or fall into a deep depression or uh, get consumed with envy or jealousy. Um, it's just human. You know, we're not, we're always variable, volatile. We can be volatile. 
So just as it's helpful to look at some of the problems with addiction and relate them to our own so-called, air quotes, normal lives, I think it's really helpful to look at, uh, look at what Marshall Linehan did. Um, I want to read a little bit about what she said about borderline personality disorder. And this is from uh, my second source from her. It's uh, basically a transcript of an interview at a, uh, some sort of convention. Uh, so it's an interview between her and Dr. Ruth Buzinski, who's also a psychologist. And the title of it is How to Apply Mindfulness to Your Life and Work, Dialectical Behavior Therapy, A New Approach to, to Treating Extreme Emotions. And uh, Marshall Linehan uh, says, borderline personality disorder as a disorder really started being looked at by the psychoanalysts back in the 30s. They saw a group of individuals with cer certain characteristic problems that their treatments were not very effective for at the time. Over the years, people have been looking at a category of people who I'm going to talk to you about in a moment but the way the name borderline personality disorder came about was due to how we think about disorders. This was a treatment that was viewed as on the borderline between psychosis and neurosis. This is actually how the term came in. <clears throat> but the term has never really identified exactly what the disorder is, and we no longer have these sorts of continuum categories of mental disorder that we used to have. That is a continuum between <clears throat> neurosis and psychosis. However, the name is stuck. I'm going to first say to people, put the name to the side. It's a technical name that we can't get rid of right at the moment, although a lot of people are trying to. <clears throat> of course, psychology is full of all the definitions and the DSM, the uh, manual that determines what exact uh, disease you have and how much insurance will pay for your treatment. So it's, it's difficult to straighten things out. <clears throat> so she gives her own uh, definition, and she says, it's a problem of severe and pervasive emotional dysregulation. What that means is it is not across one emotion, like depression or anxiety or fear, but it tends to be across all of them. So you have a group of individuals who present with sadness, anger, jealousy, envy, depression, etc. They have extreme and volatile up-and-down emotions. And not only that, but they are not able to regulate themselves. There are people today who believe that if we could rename the disorder, it would be a disorder of pervasive emotional dysregulation. She says they can't regulate their thoughts. They can't regulate their feelings, their physiology and how they feel, and they can't regulate action. So there's a degree of impulsivity in the disorder. It's very difficult to have a good relationship with a person whose emotions keep changing all the time. I hate you today. I'll love you tomorrow. I wanted to play golf with you today, but now I hate golf, and I want to go to a movie, etc. It's very difficult. <clears throat> Or if they're not that way, they see the solution to unbearable emotions. They see suicide, killing themselves, as the solution. There's an underlying belief that if they are dead, they'll actually feel better. 
or at least they won't feel as bad, even though there is no shred of evidence that this is true. And there's definitely the belief that alcohol will make you better. We know that people believe that cutting makes them feel better. I think most people know what cutting is. A lot of people who are in extreme distress will actually cut their arms and other parts of their body, and uh, it seems to bring them temporary relief. And certainly alcohol brings relief. <clears throat> I will attest to that. She said there's a lot of impulse controlled behavior, but the behavior functions to regulate your emotions only for the time being. <clears throat> so she set out, as we said before, to find some way to help people in, in this really dire condition. And uh, in the first article I brought out, um, one that was published in Psychology Today, she talks about that. She says, the goal of any behavior therapy is to help individuals change behaviors. In particular, behavior patterns that significantly disrupt their life at home and in the workplace and replace them with more effective alternatives. DBT is different. It's designed to help individuals who are at high risk for suicide, are difficult to treat, have multiple serious mental and behavioral problems, and often are on the no-admit list of hospitals. <clears throat> and it's also different because standard behavior therapy didn't seem to work. Early in my research at the University of Washington, a client would come in, we'd talk, and she'd tell me about her problems and why her life did not seem worth living. We had to discover which of her problems was driving her suicidality. It might be her believing that no one loved her, that people hated her, or that she just wanted to die. I would say, no problem, I can find a treatment for that. I would then go through existing behavior therapy manuals to try to come up with the appropriate treatment. Next week, I would review with the client what I thought was needed to solve the problem we had focused on, what changes we could make together. But a typical response to any attempt to change patients' behavior was, what? Are you saying I'm the problem? They got upset sometimes retreating into silence, other times yelling, throwing chairs, and stomping out of the room. <clears throat> You're not listening to me, clients would say. You're not hearing what I'm suffering. You're trying to change me. <clears throat> Most of the clients had in experienced intense suffering. They had tragic stories. In addition, they were extremely sensitive to anything that appeared to invalidate their pain, anything that suggested that they themselves needed to change. To them, standard behavior therapy, which is focused on helping people change, was a red flag. <clears throat> For these clients, it was as if they didn't have emotional skin, as if they had suffered from third-degree burns all over their body. Even the lightest touch was excruciatingly painful, and they lived in environments where everyone kept poking at them. They perceived suggestions aimed at change 
as personal attacks or as further invalidation. It would whip them off the emotional charts. <clears throat> you know, it occurred to me, I've been reading a book recently about uh, inflammation and uh, the causes and the effects. Um, and uh, it really is like a form of inflammation. When it gets out of control, it's very hard to dampen it down. And it's not just this population that has the problem of not liking to hear the message, <laughs> you need to change. We're all like that. Nobody really wants to, to do that work. <clears throat> we all want a pat on the head. So she says, I realized that what these people obviously needed was compassion. <clears throat> a pat on the head. To validate them. To show that the factors driving their suffering made sense to me. I had to see the world from their point of view. <clears throat> and these people very rarely get that kind of input because they're so annoying. It's uh, one, of the, one of the kindest things you can do is to meet annoying people with acceptance and compassion. It's very difficult to do, but it's possible. <clears throat> especially if there are relatives. She said, so I dumped the emphasis on change and went full bore helping clients accept where they were in their lives. My new goal was to validate my clients' tragic lives. I knew about unconditional positive regard, a set of strateg strategies developed by the humanistic psychologist Carl Rogers. <clears throat> and I knew of supportive supportive therapy, an approach that focuses on providing a strong therapeutic alliance where the therapist is both trusting and validating. No problem, I thought. Acceptance is it. I am switching my strategy. <clears throat> the response to this was as volcanic as it had been to my focus on change. What? You're not going to help me? The client would say, you're going to just leave me here in all this pain? More tears, more sitting mute, more walking out of the room. I began dancing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, trying to find the right balance between the in the dynamic between pushing for change and offering acceptance. It was like walking on a tightrope. Too much weight on either side and over you go. This is exactly like practice. This is exactly like what we're doing on the mat. Too much control and you've lost it. Too lax and it's gone. It's really, it's really the middle way <clears throat> in Buddhism. Originally, the middle way, I think, referred to the Buddha's uh, abandonment of asceticism and his adoption of the middle way of, of taking care of the needs of the body in order to be able to pursue awakening. We see it uh, in the duality of mindfulness and concentration. Going into absorption, but we have to be aware when we go down the wrong hole. I said yesterday at the, at the workshop that it's like two wings of a bird, mindfulness on the one hand and concentration or absorption on the other. And those are the two final steps in the Eightfold Path. 
<clears throat> number seven is mindfulness, and number eight is dhyana, means absorption or concentration. <clears throat> I think this duality, this this tension, is also captured in the uh, AA slogan: "God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference." She uh, she had someone make a comment to her as she was as she was pursuing this line of therapy, that she said, "Marsha, what someone her assistant of hers said, Marsha, what you're doing is dialectics," and so she went and looked that up, and uh, because it was kind of a science term, <laughs> she uh, she used it as the name of her therapy once it was once she had developed it and was deploying it, she called it dialectical behavioral therapy, behavior therapy. <clears throat> but as she, as she started uh, working with clients, now that she'd sort of hit on a way to approach these impossible cases, uh, she realized that the real key to it was acceptance. And this is uh, this is her talking about uh, developing her therapy in the uh, conference uh, <clears throat> in her interview with uh, Dr. Buzinski. She said, I had to pull back and say what is needed there. Two things became completely clear to me over time. One was that as a therapist, I had to learn to radically accept these clients. I had to radically accept a slow rate of progress. <clears throat> Many of us have had to do that in our Zen practice. It's really, it's really one of the issues of practice is people's impatience to see results, which is co totally counterproductive. Um, there's a story about the uh, Zen monk who came to the master and said, you know, I'm on fire to awaken. Uh, I, I, I'll study with you, I'll do everything you say. How long will it take me to come to awakening? And the teacher <laughs> gave him an answer. He said, uh, could take two or three years. And the monk said, I don't have that kind of time. He said, isn't there some faster way? And he, the teacher thought for a moment and said, well, in your case, it might take five years. <laughs> so he exploded just like a <laughs> bipolar or a <laughs> a psychology patient and the teacher said actually in your case 10 years Marshall Linehan says in other disorders we have very effective treatments that actually work pretty fast you can get results in 12 weeks but all of a sudden I had a group of people who were taking a long time to change they were engaged in behaviors that were very aversive to me 
and they didn't do any of the co cooperativity and clarity I thought clients should be doing. <clears throat> so the first time I realized that I myself had to learn to accept these clients and not demand that clients change immediately. And then two, it became clear to me, particularly, particularly after listening to their lives and the pain and suffering they were going through, that for many, not all but many, because many, not all but many, had unbelievably tragic pasts, that they also had to radically accept the present. They had to accept their life as it was, and they had to be able to accept their lives in the past. <clears throat> I also realized that somehow I had to teach them to tolerate distress long enough for us to solve a problem. They couldn't be constantly going to cutting or trying to kill themselves or getting drunk or taking drugs or overeating or going to all the other impulsive, destructive behaviors that were so common in this particular group. It became clear about what I had to do, what the problem was. It was just that I didn't know how to do that myself. I thought, God, I better learn how to do this. <clears throat> and this is where it gets interesting, because she, uh, she actually took a year-long sabbatical, and she went looking for someone who could teach her acceptance, to teach her the skill. And she got a couple possibilities back, and so she went to two places. The first was Shasta Abbey, many people know about. That was a Zen center run by uh, Peggy Kennett. I can't remember what her Zen name is, but uh, she was a Zen teacher. And then she went for some number of months to another Zen teacher in Germany named Villegas Jaeger. Uh, Villegas Jaeger is actually uh, uh, a teacher sanctioned by Yamada Roshi, who of course is uh, the successor to Yasutani Roshi, which was <clears throat> Roshi Kaplow's main teacher. So somehow or other, Marshall Linehan ended up uh, learning acceptance in our particular line of Zen. <clears throat> she said about her, she went first to Shasta Abbey. She said, I could go somewhere where the person is a woman, or I could go where um, the teacher, to Germany, where the teacher is, like me, a Catholic. And she thought, well, I'm going to go with woman first. So she went to Shasta Abbey, and she said in about two weeks, she realized this was it. This is what she needed. And it was, it was basically, you know, just Zen training. Um, many people have read the article Roshi wrote called The Freedom of No Choice about the benefits of Zen training, of just doing what's in front of you, of setting aside your preferences, being okay with things as they are. And that's what she experienced when she went there. She talks about... In the morning, everybody would get their assignments and learning to just take whatever assignment it was and go with it, not to waste time worrying about, oh, I hope I get the good one, hope I get the bad one. <clears throat> I don't know if any of the people here at the center have that go on in their head. <clears throat> the other thing she noticed, she mentions in her description, is that uh, when the bell would ring, say for tea break or for some other, uh, for the end of the work or whatever, whatever you were doing, stopped right in the middle. You know, if you're sweeping the floor, sweep in one direction, you don't even bring it back the other. Set the broom down and go to the next thing. It's really a, a state of 
immediate responsiveness. <clears throat> she came back uh, she came back and tried to work with her patients bringing what she had learned and the first thing she did was to teach them breathing uh, like we do on the mat uh, and that just totally didn't work. You know, her patient said, Marsha, if, if I try to do that, I'll die. Uh, and so she had, to, she had to look at what was it that she had really learned uh, in her time studying Zen. And by the way, it's a study that's gone on. She's been practicing Zen now for 30 years. I believe I read somewhere that she's actually sanctioned as a Zen teacher. <clears throat> So this is her, the approach she took, which is rather than telling people to do a different behavior, say to, uh, to radically accept their situation, she, she framed it as practice doing that. There's just a shift from here's what's wrong with you, you need to fix it, to you can practice this skill. <clears throat> she says radical acceptance means acceptance totally from the top to the bottom. It's not superficial acceptance, which many of us can do. But the real problem with acceptance is to remember that you can't make yourself be accepting. If someone says to you, just accept it, you can't do it. You cannot make yourself do that. It is unbelievably invalidating to tell someone to accept. <clears throat> it's difficult for the person who's on fire about the the value of acceptance, they found it in their own lives and they want to spread the gospel, but you're really invalidating the suffering of the person you're trying to help, as she found out head on. She says it's also invalidating because it implies that you have no understanding whatsoever of what they are going through. What you have to say is practice. In fact, for all our skills, and DBT is primarily a skills training treatment, we say practice your skills. Now, of course, therapists are practicing all the time. At my clinic, we are always saying, what skills are you practicing? Or someone will say, practice your willingness, Marsha. Practice your willingness when they know I'm not going to like something. <laughs> we all go around saying, what are you practicing? <clears throat> it's really important for me to communicate that telling people what to do is often experience invalidating but suggesting and telling people to practice is not. So you say, practice. And then she gives some examples. If someone's loved one dies, telling them to accept it is really problematic. But saying, you know, you are really going to have to practice radical acceptance. I know that's going to be hard. That recognizes it can take a really long time. So that's why we have another skill called turning the mind. Here's what I mean by turning the mind. Have you ever noticed when you practice radical acceptance, you think you accept something, and then about 10 minutes later, you're not accepting it? A good example, mundane but nonetheless good, is when you look in your pocket for your keys and they are not there. You start looking in other places, 
and about 20 minutes later, you look in your pocket again. In other words, you are not accepting that they are not there. You're back to thinking they could be. <clears throat> and her interviewer says, they should be there. <laughs> Marcia says, yes, they should be there. Therefore, you look again, but it doesn't matter how many times you look, they're not going to be there when they are not there. <laughs> For everything in acceptance, that is how it often goes. You accept, and then you're not accepting. You're accepting, and then you are not. It's especially true with grief. So many of these emotions come with waves. We come to some sort of balance and it seems like we're okay. And then in the next moment, <clears throat> we're back at square one. She says, acceptance can take a really long time. And this is one of the important things that therapists with this population have to do. They have to recognize that they too, that is the therapists themselves, have to radically accept not only themselves as the, as the therapist, but they have to radically accept the client as they are and the pace as it is. <clears throat> it's true for anybody who's trying to help other people. Everything is causes and conditions. Everybody is moving from where they are. Sometimes change takes a long time. Used to be a saying I'd hear in AA, slow change is good change. <clears throat> Of course, what we want is immediate change. And she says, that doesn't mean you don't try to improve the pace and make things work better, because of course you have to. That, that term radical acceptance Sounds really contemporary, using the word radical. <clears throat> it's rad, man. But uh, I remember reading, uh, I think it was Thomas Cahill, reading a book about uh, early Christianity. And uh, that was pretty radical, wasn't it? <laughs> you guys remember? Um, just love your neighbor as you love yourself? That's, that's, that's impossible. That's really, really something you have to work at, isn't it? <clears throat> it's, it's really similar with radical acceptance. These days, if you go to a Buddhist site, it seems like uh, the teacher Tara Brock is sort of the copyright owner of radical acceptance, and um, I'm glad she's teaching it. Uh, I, I read something she wrote which says, um, it's something I call radical acceptance, and that sort of rubs me the wrong way. As far as I can make out, this uh, approach and this wording was developed by Marshall Linehan in 1993. And it isn't like it came from psychology to Zen. It came from Zen to psychology. She learned it <clears throat> training at, at Zen centers and Zen temples. It's, it's so important to be able to work from a place of acceptance. Because when we, when we can be okay with how we are, who we are, be okay with what we've done. You know, we, we find to regret the past. There's no need to shut the door, but it's over, it's past. Now, it's this. 
have to be okay with that. If we can, then change becomes practice. Then we have a way of working. Then we're not swirling with regret and self-criticism, resentment. We have, a, we have a good shot at developing faith and confidence, which are really probably the keys to beginning a strong practice. It takes a while to develop. You have to have experience. You can't just believe it because someone says so. But gradually you realize, okay, change is possible. I can do this. There's a, there's a really good example of acceptance in life, and uh, that's improv, improvisational comedy. So I'm going <clears> to <throat> indulge myself and read a little something from an uh, article. It was taken from the book Bossy Pants by Tina Fey. And it's Tina Fey's Rules of Improvisation That Will Change Your Life and Reduce Belly Fat. <clears throat> That's an asterisk after that. And then down at the bottom it says, Improv will, will not reduce belly fat. <laughs> so she says, The first rule of improvisation is agree. Always agree and say yes. When you're improvising, this means you are required to agree with whatever your partner has created. So if we're improvising and I say, freeze, I have a gun, and you say, that's not a gun, that's your finger, <clears throat> you're pointing your finger at me, our improvised scene has ground to a halt. But if I say, freeze, I have a gun, and you say, the gun I gave you for Christmas, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> then we have started a scene because we have agreed that my finger is in fact a Christmas gun. <laughs> What better gift? Now, obviously, in real life, you're not always going to agree with what everyone says. But one of the rule, but the rule of agreement reminds you to respect what your partner has created, and at least start from an open-minded place. Start from a yes, and see where that takes you. <clears throat> As an improviser, I always find it jarring when I meet someone in real life whose first answer is no. No, we can't do that. No, that's not in the budget. No, I will not hold your hand for a dollar. <laughs> what kind of way is that to live? <laughs> the second rule of improvisation is not only to say yes, but yes and. Yes, comma, and. You are supposed to agree and then add something of your own. If I start a scene with, I can't believe it's so hot in here, and you just say, yeah, we're kind of at a standstill. But if I say, I can't believe it's so hot in here, and you say, what did you expect? We're in hell. <laughs> or if I say, I can't believe it's so hot in here, and you say, yes, this can't be good for the wax figures. <laughs> or if I say, I can't believe it's so hot in here, and you say, I told you we shouldn't have crawled into this dog's mouth. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> to me, yes and means don't be afraid to contribute. It's your responsibility to contribute. Always make sure you're adding something to the discussion. Your initiations are worthwhile. <clears throat> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of wonderful to just learn to, to the extent we can. And, and it's a practice. It's practice. 
learn to take what you're given and just go with it. You know, the, the, the course correction doesn't have to be holding your hand up. You know, it's not always talk to the hand. Um, uh, we, can, we can work with other people. We can find a way and we can work with ourselves. Um, there's so often uh, what comes up is emotional pain, is, is fear or anxiety. And then we have the, the question of how are we going to deal with that? The, the unconscious thing that most people do is to try to put a lid on it, try to push it off to the side, not face it head on. But if we turn towards it and say, you know, why is it that I don't want to give this talk? <clears throat> and just look at, you know, whatever anxiety or discomfort is coming up uh, and bring some curiosity about it into the equation, then, then things have room to move. Um, Marshall Linehan makes a point in, in some of the skills she teaches her patients that when you have a strong emotion resisting, say, uh, doing something difficult, the first thing to do is to see, well, is that emotion valid? For instance, you may be afraid to go into a room because you think there's a, a snake in there. Well, if there is a snake in there, don't go in the room. But if there is no snake, then the technique she teaches is do exactly the opposite of what you want to do. <clears throat> Go into the room and see what happens. And so often that's the way through emotional difficulties is just finding the courage to do the simple thing that you're unwilling to do. I had a friend once who said I could pay my taxes if I had the right drugs. Well, sometimes you don't have the right drugs or sometimes you don't really want to take those drugs and then you just have to pay your taxes. <clears throat> um, there's, there's so much that's possible when we're able to work at accepting things as they are and when no longer, when our focus is no longer on what's wrong especially on what's wrong with me and with what's wrong with you. Those are both really, really big problems. And, and we have to remember that I'm the way I am, you're the way you are because of causes and conditions. This is what the Buddha taught. Everything follows from one thing to another. Uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each man's life a sorrow and a suffering enough to disarm all hostility. No, Roshi used to uh, drive around with a bumper sticker on the back of his car which said, mean people are suffering. It's true. It's completely, completely true. <clears throat> Gradually, as we progress in practice, as we practice, we find we are able to take on things that used to throw us. We learn those skills. Um, we can get to a point where there's an awful lot that we can handle. I think the teacher Joko Beck used the term a bigger container. There's more and more that we can take on. There's always a point at which we can't and then we have to practice. That's our point of practice. <clears throat> uh, Jack Cornfield had a quote. He said, if you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if 
You can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy. You can happily eat whatever is put on your plate and fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill. If you can always find contentment just where you are, <clears throat> you are probably a dog. <laughs> but we can work <laughs> towards becoming dogs, all of us. So yeah, I'll dedicate this talk to my dog, Archie. And we'll stop here and recite the four vows.